I don't think Jesus wants us to give up chocolate. <laughs> Amen. All right. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Got a few more pages. Don't worry. Just to prove that one point. No. Um, if you're like, what is happening right now? What? What? Welcome to uh, mainline Christianity. Uh, so, uh, what am I talking about? Giving up chocolate things. So, so we're we're starting this season. Uh, in the life of the church called Lent. This is the first Sunday in Lent, L-E-N-T. And it's a part of the liturgical calendar that maybe this is your first time experiencing that as a part of a Christian community. It's a season of preparation, 40 days, not including Sundays, roughly six weeks, uh, preparing for Holy Week and Easter Sunday. That cross and empty tomb experience. Kind of like how Advent prepares us for Christmas Day. It's a season of preparation. And so uh, Lent traditionally is this time of, of sort of personal reflection and really focusing on in the, in, in the church and worship will typically emphasize and focus on the life and ministry of Christ, the following in that, that Jesus journey that leads to the cross and the empty tomb. And, and the traditionally, a, a personal practice that accompanies Lent is the spiritual discipline of, of fasting, which is, uh, you know, going without some sort of food in a, in a way of sort of making space for and, and practicing self-denial to reflect uh, upon God and to connect with God in a different way way. And in sort of modern American Christianity, we've kind of casually turned this into like, well, I'm going to give up sweets for six weeks. You know, that's what I'm going to do for Jesus. And um, I don't know that that's what Jesus ultimately really wants from us or, or for us. I'm not saying that you shouldn't make whatever dietary decisions are, are best for you. Please do. I'm not saying that fasting as a spiritual discipline is not helpful. It, it, it is. But I also think maybe that's just the beginning of what this season is really meant to call us into. This, this year, during the season of Lent, uh, we'll be in a, in a worship series called Laid Down and Lifted Up, and we'll be looking specifically at the gospel according to Luke, a gospel that is got boots firmly planted on the ground, um, dirt in its hands, um, seeks to be with and for the people, so to speak. And Luke's story of Jesus and the Jesus journey is going to lead us to lay some things down in almost a fasting kind of sense. But so, not so that we can sit and be hungry and think more about God necessarily, but so that others could be lifted up. We'll be looking at stories of when Jesus invites us to lay things down so that people, the reason Jesus came, people could be lifted up, and who is lifted up, and why are they lifted up, and what can we learn from these stories, and how can we apply them in our day-to-day -day lives. And so today we, we begin really picking up from last week. Um, uh, Pastor Kathy uh, led us in a reflection on Luke chapter 4 when, when Jesus enters into the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth where he grew up, and, and he's invited to um, read scripture and to teach that evening, and so he unrolls the scroll of Isaiah, uh, that same Isaiah that sits over my shoulder in our stained glass, and, and he reads about the year of the Lord's favor and the good news for the poor and release for the captive and, and sight for the blind and these things that uh, we really love talking about but, but rarely see put into practice, unfortunately, and then he, he puts the scroll back and he hands it back to the attendant and he says, now this has been fulfilled. This prophecy has been fulfilled by you hearing it. 
which is a radical statement for him to, to make because he's essentially claiming in that moment that this messianic age, this, this salvific season, that, that he himself is this savior person who has come to fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. And then what happens next in the Gospel of Luke is fascinating, and that's where we're going to spend our time today. If you have your Bibles with you or you want to follow along on a, on a Bible or on your phone, it's, on, it's in Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 22. I knew I'd get there. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 22. Everyone was raving about Jesus. So impressed were they by the gracious words flowing from his lips. It was a really good sermon. And they said, this is Joseph's son, isn't it? Luke is trying to underscore the fact that this is Jesus' hometown community. These are the people that Jesus grew up with. They're saying, That's, is that Joseph's kid? Right? That, is that him? Really? Wow, look what he turned into. And then Jesus said to them, undoubtedly you will quote this saying to me, and he's about to quote Proverbs, Doctor, heal yourself. Do here in your hometown what we've heard you did in Capernaum. See, he's been down at the, this uh, Galilean town of Capernaum, uh, you know, preaching and healing and doing these wondrous things. They're saying, great, what about us? What about us, fancy prophet man? And so he says, I assure you that no prophet is welcome in the prophet's hometown. And I can assure you that there were many widows in Israel during Elijah's time. When it didn't rain for three and a half years and there was a great food shortage in the land, yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to a widow in the city of Zarephath in the region of Sidon. There were also many persons with skin diseases in Israel during the time of the prophet Elisha, but none of them were cleansed. Instead, Naaman the Syrian was cleansed. When they heard this, everyone in the synagogue was filled with anger. They rose up and ran him out of town. They led him to the crest of the hill on which their town had been built so that they could throw him off the cliff. But he passed through the crowd and went on his way. For the word of God in scripture and for the word of God among us and for the word of God within us, let us say, thanks be to God. So as we begin this season of Lent, traditionally a scripture that we will begin this season with is the story of Jesus in the wilderness. And if you're unfamiliar, I'll summarize it now. In the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, there's a story of, of Jesus entering into the wilderness, this kind of desert landscape for a period of 40 days, which is just kind of Hebrew Bible shorthand for a long time. And there he is met by this sort of evil spiritual presence that we refer to as Satan or the devil or the evil one or fill in blank here. Um, and then uh, the, the, this figure presents Jesus with these sort of three challenges, and Jesus rebukes him three times. And then we're meant to sort of read this story as, as a sort of preparation season for Jesus before he steps into his life of ministry. Now, What's interesting is when you look at Mark and John, they don't have a wilderness story. Jesus is baptized and then immediately gets to discipling. He immediately gets to calling people into this movement. And then we read the Gospel of Matthew and there's this wilderness season, but then he gets right into discipling, exits the wilderness and gets straight to discipling, but not in Luke. Luke is unique in the fact that the wilderness story takes place, but before Jesus gets to discipling, there's this extended story of his time in Nazareth and Capernaum, where he enters into not the, the seaside town to recruit the young fishermen and tax collectors, but instead into his home church, 
and is cast out in the process. It's like, in a way, Luke extends the wilderness story and casts the church in the light of the wilderness, as though this deserted place, this dry and dusty desert in the wilderness is also the same way that the the church is. Luke sees the church as dry and deserted as the wilderness at the start of the gospel. Wow, what a critique. And I think this is partly because Luke's gospel is, is entirely interested in the Jesus who is here for the other. Not that Jesus doesn't care about the insiders, not that Jesus doesn't care about people who are sitting in the synagogues, but Luke is saying, the Jesus I want to tell you about is the one who is here for everybody else, the other 99, not, not, not for the one. In fact, the Jesus I want to tell you about starts his public ministry being kicked out of the church. That's the Jesus I want to tell you about. And so as we begin Lent, I wonder if we could begin with the humility that says, Maybe what we're searching for in this season is not, in fact, here, like quite literally here, in this space or in this Christian community, as, as insular as, as we can sometimes be in these spaces, but instead, it's beyond this space, beyond the comfortable, beyond what we traditionally deem sacred. Luke would encourage us to see a Jesus that is, in chapter 4, barely halfway through, kicked summarily out of the church. Are we prepared to follow a Jesus in those footsteps? Or did we think we were going to come to church for six weeks and call it good? And so then he, when when he finishes reading this this Isaiah scripture, and when he makes this bold claim about being the Messiah, the Messiah, and the season beginning, he then gets into this uh, sort of somewhat lengthy explanation of, of how prophets are not welcome in their hometown. I want to explain what he's getting after here. So He says, I know what you're going to say to me. You're going to quote Proverbs to me right now because I grew up in church with you. I know how you you think. Um, uh, Doctor, heal yourself. Help us out. That's what you're going to say. Great. You're the Lord's favor. Good. Can't wait to see what you do for us then. That's what he knows they're about to say to him. He says, but could I remind you of the prophet's work in the Hebrew scriptures that we celebrate in the synagogue? Do you remember Elijah? Now, Elijah was one of those really great prophets, like he's on the Mount Rushmore of prophets. Um, He said, remember Elijah, and there were all those widows in Elijah's land, but Israel didn't take care of the widows, even though they knew how to take care of widows, but they didn't. And Elijah wasn't here to cover up their mistakes. Elijah was there to extend God's grace and love of the widows who weren't already here. And it was that widow, Zephyrath, that was the widow that was blessed by God. And and do you remember the the story of Elisha? Not Elijah, I know, very confusing names for two of the most prominent prophets, but it is what it is. Another Mount Rushmore prophet, Elisha, remember him? There were all those people who were were sick here in Israel that you could have cared for, that you could have made space for, that you could have included in your communities, but you didn't. But there was that guy named Naaman the Syrian, and that's who God blessed through Elisha. See, prophets aren't welcome in their own towns because frequently what they bring to the people on the inside is a really challenging critique. And what they bring to the people on the outside is a very humble blessing and the joy and the grace and the mercy and the love of God that they haven't felt in their lives up to that point. It's fascinating to me the way that you know, Jesus in the Gospel of Luke is immediately connecting the stories of the Old Testament and the New because I think it's very easy for us to sort of see a dividing line between Old Testament God and New Testament God. We talk about it in that framework sometimes in church. And um, to be clear, the Old Testament is chock full of really challenging and troubling stories about who God is and how God works. And 
we ought to take a careful look at the way that we ascribe to God what we think God is doing. Oh, sweet baby. Let's give thanks to God for babies in church. Um, I always say a church that has a baby making noise in it is a church that is alive. Say amen. Um, parents, we're glad that you're here. And, um, and here Jesus says that same grace and love and mercy that you saw in the Elijah and Elisha stories, that's what I've actually come to bring. This isn't some radical about face for God. In fact, I'm asking you to repent. God's mercy and grace and love is continuing in the way that it has. I'm asking you to repent. You're not going to get the kind of blessing that you want out of me because what I have for you is to say, why are there widows that are poor? Why are there lepers who are cast out of communities? You, guys, this is not new information. We've got a lot of books on this stuff. There's a lot of scrolls collecting dust around here. He's calling again attention to the fact that this is a messianic age that is going to be about extending that grace and that love and that mercy in a radically inclusive way, in the same way that God has been doing it if we look closely at, this, at the scriptures of old. It's, it's amazing when you think about it. Once you say God's blessing is for the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized, everyone says, amen, yes, oh, yes, brother Jesus. But then when you put that into practice, the people inside the synagogue who are more likely to be rich and comfortable and powerful, they say, now, oh, now, wait a second, wait a second. I thought we were just talking about this. You want to actually do this, hmm. And so they receive Jesus and they say, great, Christ is here to serve us. But then when they realize that Christ is here to invite them into the humble posture of service, that story changes. I wonder if this season of Lent could be about this. When, when we lay down our presumed ownership of Christ, oh good, Christ is here to serve me and my ends. Oh, I'm so glad that Christ is here. When we lay down our presumed ownership of Christ, we discover the Jesus that we can't ever contain. I'm using those names specifically. The Christ is that messiah, that savior, that saving work. My friends, can I speak honestly? Sometimes I think we believe the church as the sole owner of salvation in the world. And I'm here to tell you, as a pastor and minister of the gospel, we are not. When we believe that to be true, that we are the, that we are the sole owners of salvation, we are making the same mistake as the synagogue in Nazareth 2,000 years ago. And what we're missing is the Jesus, the real living flesh and blood Jesus Savior who is here to lead us if we are willing to get outside of ourselves and to see the saving work at work beyond us and our communities and our spaces that make us feel comfortable and rich and powerful. When we lay down our presumed ownership of the Christ, we can discover the Jesus that we can't ever contain. Now, I certainly believe in Jesus as Savior. If I didn't, I'd be doing something else with my Sunday mornings. But I believe in Jesus so much that I listen to his story, where 98% of his ministry in public is spent beyond the walls of religious institutions, which is an interesting thing to say as someone who is responsible for a religious institution. I understand the irony in that. I'm not, I'm, it's not lost on me. But my friends, I think at our best, I think church is a place where we can gather together to celebrate and acknowledge all the ways and places we discover Jesus beyond this space. I don't think it's about coming together so that we can have a book club and pat ourselves on the back and say, God, aren't, don't they wish they knew what we knew? That doesn't interest me. 
Because quite frankly, there are many weeks that I see Jesus in Christ, not so much in this stained glass space, although it's beautiful, and I do see Jesus in Christ in this space, but I see him most clearly, crystal clearly, like for instance this week, it was in a two and a half hour tear-drenched conversation at a coffee shop down the road from my house with someone that I didn't know this time last week. Someone who is, is deathly afraid of living fully into who God has made them to be because they know that their complicated relationship with the, the church that they find themselves in currently means that if they ever choose to live authentically as themselves and they know they need to, it's going to mean the end of almost every relationship in their lives. Sitting there and, and listening to the, the, the pain and also the hope and having my own heart ripped apart and opened up in a new way. That was, that was Jesus. You know, Tuesday through Thursday in the office, I got emails. They were good, some of them. I deleted some others. But I found Jesus in that coffee shop. I don't think we are the sole owners of the saving work of God. In fact, I would call us to repent and believe the gospel if we ever begin to think like that. And so then when Jesus spits this truth and drops the mic, as it were, he gets run out of the church. What a cool savior, right? Luke says, let me tell you about the Jesus that got kicked out of his church. Not just kicked out, they tried to kill him. Did you catch that? They run him up to the cliffside, and they're trying to throw him off, and he ends up passing through. Just kind of matrixes his way through. I don't really know. <laughs> not sure what it looked like. Maybe Luke's exaggerating just a smidge. Preachers never do that. Um, he goes from one crowd who's about to throw him off the cliff, and, and he instead enters into a crowd that is dangling off the cliff. The people in Capernaum are suffering. In the language of Scripture and of the day, there are people who are suffering from uh, possession of demons, which could mean so many things in a modern context. There are people who are suffering from, from ailments. There's, there's poverty widespread in this very economically uh, disparate society. And, and so he, he goes into Capernaum, he passes through the crowd of his hometown and enters into the crowd of Capernaum, not to actually make disciples, He's still not into disciple-making. Luke says, no, this Jesus is not done yet. He is going to continue to model the kind of ministry that he is calling us into. He gets to work. He casts out demons. He begins to provide healing. He, he addresses some of the structural needs there in Capernaum itself. And what I was struck by reading this story in light of the beginning of Lent this week, it's, it's this, Jesus lays down the holiness of, found in the sanctuary, and if I was a provocative pastor, I might even say he lays down the holiness found in the scriptures, quite literally laying down the scriptures, and instead lifts up the holiness found in the street. Jesus lays down the holiness found in the sanctuary where we think holiness is meant to live, and instead lifts up the holiness found in the street. He says, I'll find the crowd that I was here to serve. Now, this is an essential Wesleyan concept. When I say the word Wesleyan, I'm, I'm talking about the sort of theological framework that, that we hold to in the United Methodist Church. It's a, a product of a theologian from a few hundred years ago named John Wesley, um, and he was an Anglican priest who accidentally started a denomination. I hate it when that happens. And he was talking about the subject of holiness, this idea of what it means to live rightly in God's love, holiness. 
And so frequently we talk about holiness in a purely personal sense, that, that being a holy person means, you know, waking up early and reading your Bible for an hour and spending time in prayer and fasting and doing all these sort of personal things. That's what holy people do. And John was really good at all of that stuff, but he also knew that that only took him so far in the course of his faith. And he said this quite famously. He said, solitary religion is not to be found there, there being in the gospel. He says, the gospel of Christ knows of no religion but social. No holiness but social holiness, a holiness that draws us into relationship with the people around us. Faith working by love, he says, is the length and breadth and depth and height of Christian perfection. When he talks about social holiness, he's not just talking about reading the Bible with friends now. Right? He's talking about what reading the Bible will actually do to us in our society, will do to us in our neighborhoods, will lead us to do in city council meetings like Pastor Kathy talked about last week, or at school board meetings, or in the streets, or in the grocery store, or wherever you find yourself in the week. It's the idea that holiness exists beyond ourselves calls us into a life that is bigger than us and actually asks us to substantially transform the Capernaums in our world. Methodists very famously were responsible for prohibition back in the uh, 20s. I'm sorry about that. Um, and, and it's interesting when you look at the history as to why this sort of culture of, of anti-alcohol developed in Methodism, because the origins of it had nothing to do with people saying, well, God doesn't want us to drink alcohol. We are meant to be holy people that do not consume. Um, the reason why John Wesley was actually initially against liquor, and specifically whiskey in his environment, was because that uh, it was not a moralistic thing. It wasn't like a personal morals thing. It was an economic justice thing. Because what was happening is in Britain in, the, in his day, a few hundred years ago, half of the wheat that was being produced by the farmers was going into the distilling industry, which made the wheat expensive in kind. And, and in turn, it made bread expensive. And do you know what poor people need to eat on a daily basis is bread. And it was getting too expensive for the poor people in Britain to eat. And so John Wesley was an advocate of, of limiting uh, the consumption of alcohol because he said economically it is creating inflation for bread and poor people are starving. Right? And then several hundred years later, we get Welch's grape juice. Because <laughs> we totally lost the point, right? Like, oh, yeah, yeah, holy people don't drink liquor. No, that's not, that's not, the, it's not the point. Yeah, there's a personal practice there, but it was about the economic justice that J John Wesley was trying to address in his land. I share that for two reasons. Number one, to justify the fact that I did have bourbon and dark chocolate last night. <laughs> it's all been leading here. I share that number two because... I. Yes, I want us to spend the next six weeks and really the rest of our lives in prayer. And yes, I want us to spend time with Scripture. And yes, I think that fasting is a fantastic way to connect with God's heart in a unique and compelling way. And I would ask for the love of God, and I truly mean, literally mean for the love of God that we could lay those things down when given the chance to find the Jesus in the streets and amongst the masses, and in the coffee shop, and alongside the poor and the dispossessed. 
Because it's not just about doing the things by myself to act more holy and to feel like I'm in a better relationship with God. It's about how those practices and things can then lead me into a world that needs me to be awake and needs me to be attuned to the ways in which things are not perfect. And then to have the strength and the faith and the courage to do something about it. That's the story Jesus not only lived, but also invites us into. It's not just an extension of the faith that we find in the sanctuary, my friends. It's the source of faith that the sanctuary did not, will not, and cannot claim as its own. Salvation is, in fact, out in the streets. And this is the place where we can celebrate the Jesus that we found. Amen.